uh, which we're going to be looking at the book of Revelations, chapter 1. And a couple thoughts as we look at that. One is, I sure don't preach a whole lot of messages out of Revelations, but um, I'm excited about this one. Uh, a couple thoughts as we lead into that. One is just the importance of the revelation of Jesus, that the revelation of Jesus is what causes us to become the church that Jesus has called us to be. Where do I get that? Matthew chapter 16. If you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. But Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. He asks this famous question. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples respond and say, well, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, of course, stands up from the 12 and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And there's no way that Peter could have said these words without some kind of a revelation having ha happened. Be why? Because Jesus had never said up to that point that he was the son of God. And it would be heretical for him to say such things. The Jews were not anticipating a son of God. They were anticipating a Messiah. This idea of the son, that is complete her heresy. It's blasphemy. So for Peter to say that was amazing, and this is why Jesus responds to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. The Greek word translated into our English Bible as revealed is apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. And it, it literally means like an unveiling, kind of like if a, of a, of a bride, there was a wedding here last night, a bride has her, probably a reception the more I think about it, probably wasn't the wedding ceremony, but we know, who knows. A bride has the veil lifted up and you see the image of the bride's face with the veil over it, right? But when that veil is lifted up, you see it in, in detail, in full color. You see the details. That's the idea. So Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not unveiled this to you but my father in heaven and I say to you you are Peter not Simon Peter Petrus a piece of a rock a stone you are a stone and on this Petra this boulder this revelation that you just spoke I will build my church the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How many of you want to be a part of the church that Jesus is building? A church that Jesus himself says the gates of hell, the administration and government of hell cannot prevail against it. That church, I, on this rock, I will build my church. What rock? Revelation. And Revelation, if you look with me, chapter 1 begins with verse 1, the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. This is not just about end times. It is, but it's not just about end times. The Holy Spirit is first and foremost given to reveal Jesus to us, just like Jesus was given to reveal the Father. So the, the same thing that happened to Simon Peter is the same phenomenon that happens in the earth to build the church the Holy Spirit reveals to the heart of a person who Jesus really is, 
and it's on that rock that the church is built. Why? Because as according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as we behold the Lord, have unveiled and see him for who he is. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? In fact, you cannot be born again without knowing what I'm talking about. One cannot come to faith with Jesus without having the Holy Spirit reveal who Jesus is, at least a part of it. And the life that we now live on into eternity is an ever-growing revelation of who he is. On that, the church is built. Only that can prevail against the gates of hell. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at revelation of Jesus. I don't know, maybe about six things of the revelation of who he is, according to this first chapter of the book of Revelations. And we're going to be kind of interspersing into that. Um, I'm with a wordsmith back there. I don't even know. Is interspersing the right word? <laughs> Putting into it. <laughs> inserting. Let's use a normal word. Inserting into it confessions. Why is that important? Because conf- there's something about speaking with your mouth, revelation, that puts it into power. There's something about Peter having to stand up and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that released Jesus to then say those amazing words back to him. You follow? So we want to confess, not just look at, but on the spot right now confess. So let's look with me, look with me to Revelations chapter 1, ver- starting in verse 1. We're just going to read through it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come excuse me, take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, now we're getting into who's actually talking here. John, the apostle John, the one who is very close to Jesus. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, that corresponds to what you and I would know today as Western Turkey, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now we're talking about God the Father, the one who was and who is and is to come. Why do we know we're talking about God the Father? Because in the very next verse, it says, and from Jesus Christ. So we know that separate from Jesus Christ is this person who's described as the one who was and who is and who is to come. So God the Father, he was and he is now and he is to come. God the Father is reigning over all of eternity. He's without the, the limitations of time. He's, he's from the beginning and, and is forevermore. He is above all things as such. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, and here's our first, first revelation of Jesus as he is revealed in this book, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And so let's dig into that quickly. The faithful witness. This is our first revelation of Jesus in this book. The faithful witness. Now, the word witness there. Uh, martus, the Greek word translated as witness, martus is where, where we get the English word martyr. It would speak of one who, who dies for their faith. And so if we want to look at it from that perspective, that would make sense. He's the faithful one who is faithful to God all the way and even to the point of death. He's the faithful martyr for God. But I think, and most theologians would agree, the probable idea here, in fact, why don't we include both ideas because they're both accurate, is he is the faithful witness in the sense of witness as one who gives testimony in a trial, a witness, 
a witness to what, he, what, what, what was seen and what was heard. Jesus is a faithful witness. There's many voices in the earth who would say things about anything, including even Jesus himself. Jesus is the faithful witness. His, he is the reliable source of truth who witnesses perfectly and whose description and, uh, and representation of God is perfectly reliable. Hebrews chapter 1, in fact, says of Jesus that he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Jesus, mankind desperately needs to see God the Father because of what happened at sin. We stopped being able to interact with him and see him as he is. And Jesus has come as the intermediary and is a perfect representation of God the Father to us. He is faithful and trustworthy. There was a few nights ago uh, where I was lying in bed. I was having a hard time going to sleep. And uh, it was probably like one in the morning. Minda was next to me, gone. And, uh, and, I, and I just had a lot of things stirring in my heart from the previous week in Chicago when we went to that gathering of NC, my partner churches called Equip. And I've got these things going on inside of me, and I thought I, I was going to grab my phone and just start scrolling through Facebook or whatever, you know, and I thought, no, I'm going to use this time and, and use it for something valuable. And so I just started thinking about the things that God was doing and the questions that I had and the yearnings that I had and the unsettled things, the things I need clarity on. And, and uh, I remembered a, a word that somebody shared with me personally, and, I, and there was a scripture related to it. So I went and looked that up, and then as I looked it up, I w I w it was good. It was encouraging, but it was like I just I want to I, I just want to hear what Jesus has to say, and I knew that Jesus spoke to this particular issue that I was questioning and wanting to know more about and wanting to get clarity on. I knew He spoke to it in Matthew chapter six, and I went over to Matthew chapter six and I just started reading. And as I did, it was like the in the silence of one o'clock, pitch black. No one, not even Stanley, our dog, making any noise. And it's just me and Jesus. And I just had this sense of, these are not just the words, Matthew chapter 6 on a page. These are words that were recorded from the, from the king of all kings that came to this earth and spoke these words. And I'm hearing them from him. And they are absolutely 100% reliable and faithful and full of truth. And it was just like that confidence. That's who Jesus is. It's absolute truth, perfect representation of the Father. Can we make a confession right here, right now? And you can say it with me if you can say it in faith. Jesus, you are the perfect picture of God. Let's go on to the next one. So Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, he is also the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Jesus, let's, let's dig into that quickly. He's the firstborn from the dead. Uh, a lot of people, I've heard some people refer to Jesus as Father. In fact, there's one person in this room who's done it a few times. And I open my, up my mouth to correct it every time. Jesus is not our Father. And this person tends to be like, oh, okay, I know he's not our father, God's a father, but you know, you know what I mean. No, actually, he's not our father. He is the firstborn among many brothers. 
And that is very significant. He's the firstborn among many brothers, meaning that God had one begotten son. There is one woman in the history of all eternity, Mary, who was impregnated by the Holy Spirit to bring forth a only begotten son of God. And that son made the way for others to become, as he is, a son of God. Even if you're a female in here, the Bible calls you a son of God with an inheritance and a calling from your father. You can be a daughter of God, too. Okay, go on. So Jesus makes, he's the firstborn among many brothers, but he's the firstborn from the dead. How did he make it so that we could become, as he is, a son of God? He had to become fully as we were, dead. Dead. When he went to that cross, he took upon himself the physical death. He was verifiably dead. When he went into the tomb, they tested, made sure he was dead. He was dead, dead before he went into that tomb. Physically dead. And, I believe, spiritual death. One of his last and final words on that cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is spiritual death? It is the absence of the Father. The separation from the Father. He literally became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. On that cross, he suffered the full scope of the punishment of sin, which ultimately is separation from the Father. Physical death and spiritual death. He, he took it upon it in his whole self. Encouraging words, right? But he's the firstborn from the dead. He didn't stay there. Because of what he did, he is the first one because he is life. If I, death could not hold him down. How many of you know that there is no such thing as cold? Cold is simply the absence of heat. There's no such thing as darkness, it's just the absence of light, right? If I were, have you ever seen darkness overtake light? It's impossible, right? If, if, if it looks like darkness is overcoming light, it simply means that your light bulb is dimming. It doesn't mean that darkness is overtaking light. Death is the absence of life, and life is, is more powerful, and Jesus is the way, the truth. He is the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and because of that, he has come back from the dead as the firstborn among many who follow in his wake. His leadership leads to life. Life here on this earth, real God kind of life, as well as life into eternity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, would not perish, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Can we make a confession about Jesus? Jesus. You are life, and my true life is only in you. So he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. It, when he comes back from the, from the grave, he, he is seen by many of his followers at the end of all of the Gospels, and in Matthew chapter 28, he pulls his 12 aside. Actually, by that point, it would have just been 11. He pulls them aside, he takes them to a hill, and he says these words to him. Having resurrected from the grave, he says, All authority 
in heaven and in earth have been given to me. How much is included in all? What is excluded in all? All authority has in heaven and in earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Jesus, this idea of him being the ruler of the kings of the earth is now a picture, a revelation of Jesus as the exalted in the highest place that there will be nobody having authority that is higher than his. He is above all. The name that is above every other name. And in fact, this is, is where we get in, in the rest of the book of Revelations, uh, this phrase, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. In fact, in chapter 19 of Revelations, I'll just read it. Jesus is coming back, uh, riding a white horse. And it says that he has on his robe in verse 16 and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Can we make a confession? Jesus, God has placed you in the highest power. And I surrender to your lordship. You see, that's the idea. The end of the first gospel that was ever preached on the day of Pentecost culminated with Peter saying these words. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the way to respond to the gospel is to agree with God the Father, who has made Jesus Lord by declaring him to be your Lord. Not just saying Jesus Christ is Lord, that doesn't do anything. It's bending the knee of your heart and confessing you have it all because you deserve it. Now, a tyrannical leader, I'm going to be a little hesitant to be able to give him that place in my heart. A king who voluntarily dies when I'm the one at fault and he's not, I can trust his power. I can trust his leadership, which brings us to the very next thing that's said of him. Are you following this? It is important, I think, that God had these words to describe Jesus in this book. It would do us well to understand what God's wanting to say to us about who his son is based on this book. The ruler of, or the kings of the earth, here we go, and to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I don't know if we can have a more definitive revelation of Jesus than that. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The ultimate expression of who God is in that right there. He doesn't just love us. It's one thing to have feelings about somebody or a group of people. You love them. You have feelings for them. But this is far more than that. This is a holy God who is rejected, who is disobeyed by his own creation when he is the God of glory and power and virtue and holiness and his creation denied him and rejected him and that God sent his son to pay the penalty of their sin so that they could be reunited to him. That is love. That's not just feelings. That's love. The ultimate expression of who God is. And I just want us to take into consideration that what happened at the fall, how we got into the mess that, ha that led to Jesus getting in, going to the cross in the first place, 
when Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden and that, that serpent came to them and spoke to them, even though they had met God face to face, they had never seen the demonstration of the love of the sacrificial love of God. They had seen him, they had encountered him. To be honest with you, having encountered him, I, 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 I know that this is the pride of my heart. I don't know how Adam and Eve fell. <laughs> like, how can you be in the presence of God and then be talked out of it, having encountered his glory? But then again, I've encountered his glory and gone from there and sinned again. So, you know, maybe I should stop pointing the finger. But I do wonder what we're going to look at when we see Adam and Eve in heaven. It's going to be like, oh, well, you know, welcome to the party, Adam. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but the thing that led Adam and Eve to that place, they had never encountered the sacrificial love of God. And the serpent came and, and, uh, and, and suggests to them, say, it actually says this, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of the fruit of that tree? And they're like, well, yeah, he said that, and we shouldn't touch it unless we die. He's, and the serpent says, well, you shall not surely die. In fact, if you eat it, you're going to become wise like him. And he doesn't say it, but he implies in this, God lies to you. Now, how many of us have ever believed that God is untrue? Or do all of you perfectly trust God all the time? Secondly, he's implying not only does God lie, he lies to keep you down and to limit you and keep you under him so that he can control you at his uh, uh, benefit and your expense. And underneath all of that, God does not really love you. That, my friends, that is what it humanity bit into at the fall. That is the lie. That's the lie that had to be undone in order for man to be reunited to God. And so, in, in his sovereignty, thank you, Lord, thank you, Holy Spirit, in his sovereignty, God is able to take the horror of what happened at the fall and use that to become the very thing that he is able to now do to undo the greatest lie, the greatest thing that underpins the entirety of the fall, which is the lie that God doesn't really love you, by making that the thing that requires Jesus to come and to hang on a cross, and to die for the punishment that we deserve so that we can be reunited to him. Meaning that every person who enters the kingdom of heaven into the new heaven and the new earth that are the result of what Jesus has done, all do so having seen the testimony of the love of God expressed, the sacrificial love of God expressed in the person of Jesus. You follow? Every single one of us who have received Jesus has something that Adam and Eve did not have. It is a revelation, not only that God is good, not only that he's glorious, he suffered, bled, and even died for me when I was a sinner. Not after I came to him, before I came to him, before I repented, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That destroys every lie that the enemy can try to bring to us today to say that God lies, God does not really tell you the truth, that he uh, actually tries to control you, and that ultimately he doesn't really love you. Even if the lie is that he doesn't love you because of your own misgivings. He loves us regardless. 
This love is the foundation for following Jesus. I want to suggest to us we can have a revelation of his power and authority, and we need that. And in the church, I've seen many who either want to see the power and lordship of Jesus. This was my passion for the first 17 years of, of being a Christian, was his power and his authority and his lord and dominion. But I want to say, as important as that, and that probably most of the church failed to see that, we've got to see the other part of the Jesus, that he is the love of God, the grace of God, that I cannot be good enough to, to, to be worthy of his love, and yet he loves me as I am. I've got to have both to walk in the fullness of the call. I've got to have the revelation of all of who Jesus is to walk in, in all of what God has for me. Can we make a confession? Jesus, you sacrificially love me. I can trust you. So it's to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And maybe this isn't a revelation of his ultimate character and nature, but it is a revelation of something that's true of Jesus, is that he is coming. He is returning. He will return in bodily form. And not only that, every eye will see him. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. Today we live in a time period in which most tongues do not confess the lordship of Jesus. Perhaps many who would call themselves Christians do not recognize his lordship. Savior, sure. Lord, mm, maybe not. One day, every tongue will confess. I think this is important because what is the church called to do in this time period? To be witnesses of Jesus just as he had been a witness of his father. And it is important for us to know to the people that we are saying things to about Jesus and the ridicule that we possibly could get, the negative feedback we possibly could get, it's important for us to know one day they will confess along with us. He is Lord. There is no shame. Now, don't go Bible bashing people about Jesus, right? If, if you offend somebody for Jesus, let it be because of the spirit of darkness of, of the age and not because we are annoying Christians. <laughs> Can I say that? I've seen a lot of that. It, it, we don't want to turn people off with our methods. Let the message be the thing that becomes the, the sticking point. But what I'm saying is let that embolden us that every person you encounter will one day see the same thing you and I do. doesn't mean we all become saved as some have taught, it means that every, every demon will confess that he is, he is Lord. One day, he is coming with clouds, every eye will see him. Even those, they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end. Corresponding to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, you may have heard, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Ever heard that before? Everlasting Father. If you look at the original Hebrew language, it means the progenitor, the father of time and, and eternity. The one who is over all of, of time, everlasting Father. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying I am the A and the Z. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Check this out. Who is and who was and who is to come? Have we heard that before this morning? Speaking of whom? No. Who's God the Father? who is and was and is to come. It was and is and is to come. And now Jesus is saying of himself something that was relegated only to God the Father. I am the Alpha and Omega over the beginning and the end, over all of time. I am the one who is and who was and is and is to come, making himself to be equal fully to God. Are we seeing the exaltation of the book of Revelations, of wanting us to see something of who Jesus actually is. Equal fully to God. Fully man became fully man, fully God. Now this is being written by somebody who walked intimately with Jesus. It says, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty. The Strong's Concordance would say of that word, all ruling. That is God as absolute and universal sovereign. This is the Jesus that we worship. Can we confess something? Jesus, you are above all creation, fully exalted, equal to God, worthy of all praise, entirely powerful, perfectly overcoming, deserving of all our devotion. Next verse, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you don't know what he's talking about, John, tradition would say, was boiled in oil. We don't know absolutely if this would happen, but they couldn't apparently kill him. And so instead of killing him, they exiled him to an island called Patmos, which is, which we're about to find out, where he had a revelation from the Holy Spirit that became this book called the Revelation of Jesus, Revelations. So let's continue. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard from behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Who is speaking? Yes, Jesus. The first and the last, repeating the emphasis that we just saw. And what you see, write in a book, which is the very book we're reading now, and send to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I want to jump down real quick, a little spoiler, to understand what we're about to read. Let's jump directly down to verse 20, if you would, because there's going to be a kind of uh, prophetic vision that John has about Jesus and Jesus explains the vision here in verse 20. Let's read that to start. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my, Jesus, my right hand, 
and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Most theologians would agree the angels is, uh, the, is speaking of messenger, not a celestial angelic being, a messenger probably like a pastor, somebody leading the church, or at least somebody God has sent to send a, a message to the church. Most would agree. Whether it's an angel that delivers messages from God to the church, or it's a preacher of some kind, uh, in either way, it, it, we still interpret it the same way. We still, we still get the same purpose and meaning out of it. So the, the seven stars are the angels, or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, let me find where we were, Lampstands, candlesticks, your translation may say, which you saw are the seven churches. Interesting that a church here is uh, described as a candlestick or a lampstand. In those days, now you and I, when we went a lamp, what do we do when we went light? We, we did the switch. How many of you know they, not so much, back 2,000 years ago. There was oil, and there was a wick, and they had to be filled with oil, and the wick had to be regularly trimmed. And here's Jesus walking amongst his seven churches. In the first couple chapters of this book, it's going to be him trimming those candle stands, adjusting them so that they shine properly, and filling them with oil, which speaks of the Holy Spirit. The fear of God is upon my, Paul Nichols, my heart in this time, that that same Jesus is walking amongst his church today, this church and has messages that he wants to send to us to trim us with the same level of severity. And we're going to look at Revelations 2 and 3 and, and hear those messages. I hope we will in the weeks to come. But I just want to say that this Jesus is the head of his church. This is not about big bishop so-and-so and his church. No, this is Jesus' church. And, and he's the one who sees what needs to happen for his church to become what it's called to be. And a rep an accurate representation of himself. And so that Jesus, we read in this next verse, which should be verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. Who is I? Who is me? There we go. John, thank you, theologian Rodney. Everybody tra track, though. I, me, this is John. Let me just remind us of a few things about this John who's writing this. This John was, was a syrupy best friend of Jesus. Syrupy in his love and affection for Jesus. He described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. None of the other disciples said that. He says that about himself. In his own depiction in the book of John, when Jesus had been found to be out, uh, gone from the tomb, it says that in John's depiction, that Peter and John run to the tomb, and guess who John makes sure we know got there first? John got there first. And uh, the night before that, or a few nights before that, when they're at the Last Supper, John describes himself as having leaned his head upon the breast of Jesus. He's the only one and that kind of intimacy and, and, and fellowship. This is the nature of the way that Jesus, I mean, John related to Jesus. He was affectionate. He was the best friend. Uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross. J John is the one who comes. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. <laughs> John's the one who comes to Jesus, and Jesus uh, tells John, take care of my mom. John had this special relationship, best friend with Jesus. 
If you read the, the, the language of his, of his gospel, totally different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's poetic, it's art, it's, it's love. And this John has a revelation of Jesus, exalted, fully revealed for who he is. These are the words that we're about to read of what that same John saw of this Jesus and what effect it had on him. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. This is not just the Jesus, the, the, the dude that I hung out with that I thought was so cool and so wonderful. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell down as dead. That is the, the, the John... Who, who was intimate and was the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning upon the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, seeing this Jesus after the ascension, ascended into the highest place, fully manifesting the entirety of God, the glory and the power, he falls down as dead. He is fully glorious. And the world longs to see a God like that. And for the world to see that God, the church needs a revelation of that Jesus. That what is in heaven would manifest here on the earth. And the nature of Jesus being all-powerful in that way Check out the heart of Jesus in the way Jesus responds to John in this moment. But he laid his right hand on me. That, that same physical touch, that intimacy that meant so much to John. He laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. This is the Jesus that we worship. All-powerful, all-loving, the complete fulfillment of everything you and I have ever really wanted and the complete fulfillment of everything that every broken soul outside of these doors has ever yearned for. And oh, if the church of Jesus would see and have a revelation of Jesus, that we would walk in the nature and likeness of Jesus, that the world would see him in us. This is what you and I are called to do. What the church needs more than anything is a greater revelation of Jesus. He's walking amongst his church even today, trimming and filling the lampstand 
And what I would want to say to us this morning is, why don't we exalt him through praise, through worship, right now, 